What happened next is a story oft repeated and repeatedly forgotten. A burning bush, a stick turned to a snake, a leprous hand, a lot of back and forth, and ten plagues later, Israel finally tasted freedom when Moses led them out of Egypt. Years after, some would say they could still smell the salt mist swirling violently up from the parted Red Sea. Could still see Miriam leading the women in a dance with their timbrels after the waters closed in on the chariots. Could still taste the provision of manna and quail in the wilderness. But the memories faded, and we soon forgot all that God had done. We lost faith, lost direction, and wandered around complaining for years. To get us back on track, God gave 613 commandments, the law, a cartography for how to move safely and healthily through a savage and sick world, a guidebook for worship and holidays, all of which were kind of a, a sensory overload. Incense in the tabernacle, the smoke of burnt offerings on the altar, the blasting of trumpets, the eating of bitter herbs in the Passover feast. After many wars and heartaches and miracles, God's people at last made their home in a land flowing with milk and honey. A boy who spent his days in the field with sheep played the harp before a brooding king. He later exchanged the peat animal stink in his hair for the cinnamon and cassia aromas of the holy anointing oil poured over his head when he himself became king. It was later foretold that a very special king would come from the line of David who would save us from our oppressors once and for all. People took this very literally, which led to a lot of confusion, and in general, having earthly kings was a headache that ended in disaster. Remember those inimitable luminous eyes we talked about at the beginning? The ones that can wander? They did. Under a series of bad kings, they drifted to and worshipped false gods of the surrounding nations, Baal, Ashtoreth, Dagon, Marduk. They tempt us still to this day, we just call them by different names. This led to a new kind of sensory overload, the cup of staggering, the stench of death and the massacre of Jerusalem, smoke rising from the ashes of Solomon's temple destroyed, the wailing of God's people as the Babylonians carried us into exile, cut off from our land of promise. On the banks of the Euphrates River, we were so homesick that not even singing songs from the old country could lift up our spirits anymore. So we hung up our instruments in the willow trees, heaped ashes on our heads and wept. Our captors wanted to torment us, so they taunted, their acidic hot breath like toxic vapor demanding in our ears, show a little mirth. Come on, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How could we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? Our mouths went dry, our souls went dry. Where was he? This supposed conquering king from the line of David. How long would he hide his face? This rod of Jesse, this key of David, who would pay our ransom? That's a great question. Who's going to pay our ransom? Hope you've been enjoying those videos. They've been... Uh, leading somewhere. As we all know, it's leading toward Christmas, and uh, we'll see the last one next Sunday. But uh, it is great to be with you guys this morning, and I cannot believe that Christmas is only six days away. Anyone believe that? <laughs> oh boy, sorry if, it's, if you're like, what? Uh, does anyone else feel like this month is just flying by? Anyone? Yep. 
I had a sneaking suspicion that that would happen. So that's why I wanted to spend the entire month of December looking at key people from the Old Testament story and see how they point us to Jesus as our ultimate hope, love, peace, and joy. So picking up where we left off, we're going to continue our Advent series today by looking at how Joseph, Moses, Joshua, and David show us that Advent is about peace and joy. So let's pray, and then we'll dive in. Father, thank you that we can gather again in your name. Thank you that we can gather as the family of God to open your word, to sing songs to you, to fellowship together. And I just pray that your spirit would superintend this meeting today, our our meeting together, and as the word is open, that your spirit would please give us illumination to help us to see you through these scriptures. I pray that you would open our eyes and open our ears and open our hearts to hear what it is you're saying to us because you're always speaking. And I pray that we would hear what you're saying. And Lord, I pray that we would join in with the angels celebrating that Christmas is all about Jesus come. He is peace. He is joy. He's what we're looking for. And I pray that you would drive that point home to our hearts today and that you would help us remember that the season, that Christmas, that Advent is all about you coming into this world to save us. So we thank you for that, and as we look at these different people from the Old Testament, I pray that your spirit would just open our eyes to see how they point us to you, and that we'd be able to, as we just sung, come and adore you, because you're worth it. So thank you for our time. We give it to you, and say, lead on, Lord, in your name. Amen. All right, so where we left off last time was Jacob wrestling with the pre-incarnate Christ. And after that, the story shifts to his favorite son... Joseph. So right off the rip, we need to notice something, that Jacob is a man in process, just like us. He wrestles with the pre-incarnate Christ, finally gets the blessing he was looking for, and then ends up playing favorites with his kids. I thought that was the problem. He wasn't his father's favorite, and now he's repeating that with Joseph. So this is one of the reasons I love the Bible so much. It records things as they are, and as we read it, it gives us hope. Because if God can show up in a man like Jacob and through the Joseph account, I think he can also show up in our story as well. If God showed up, spoke to them, led them, loved them, guided them, and was committed to helping them live their new names, live into their new names, live out of their new identities... I'm kind of crazy enough to think he'll do the same for us, little by little, moment by moment. So I also hope we can learn from it to see things not to do, right? So peering into Jacob's story, we see him elevating Joseph over all the other kids. As Jacob's favorite, he gets all sorts of preferential treatment, and his brothers end up hating him big time for it. I mean, can you imagine having a brother who comes to you one day and says, I had a dream last night where all of you were bowing down to me. Hmm. And if that wasn't enough, he has another dream, comes to the whole family and tells them the same thing. So out of their great love and respect for their brother, 
<laughs> Just kidding. It was, I have great hatred for him. They sell Joseph into slavery, and he's taken to Egypt as a slave. So while Joseph is in Egypt, he rises through the ranks. He's falsely accused. He's thrown into prison. He's basically forgotten about for a very long time. And even though he was going through all of that, God was not going to forget his promise to send a savior into the world. All of this was happening just as God foretold it would, so Jesus would come into the world. Let's not forget that things happen in our lives for much the same reason. So Jesus would be manifest through our lives. So after all of this, through God's help, Joseph interprets some pretty amazing dreams, and then eventually, because of his God-given ability, becomes second in command in Egypt. And through his God-given wisdom, he stores a bunch of food away, and then when a horrible famine comes on the land, Joseph is reunited with his brothers. Now that's where things get interesting. So Joseph is sitting at the right hand of Pharaoh, He is now insanely powerful. He can use his power to crush his enemies, but instead, he chooses to save them. Probably the most powerful retelling of the story I've ever seen was Joseph at Sight and Sound. Have any of you guys ever been to Sight and Sound before? Oh, if you haven't, make a trip this Christmas season or sometime. They put the Bible on display in such a beautiful, powerful way with songs and videos. And actually, they, they have like three stages. It's absolutely incredible. So during that play, during the Joseph play at Sight and Sound, they have Joseph invite all his brothers into a feast. And he's at the head of the table, and he lines their brothers up he lines his brothers up in birth order around the table. I mean, just imagine that, nailing all of those names in just the right order. Imagine what his brothers are thinking as he does this. It shocks them to the core, and when you zoom out a little bit, you get this overwhelming sense that the brothers did not deserve this. Not at all. So as they're together, Joseph reveals his true identity to them, weeps over them, and has them go home and get their very frail father. And even though they don't deserve this at all, Joseph was enabled by God to forgive them, to forgive those who betrayed him and sold him into slavery. And instead of getting back at them, which they feared pretty much the whole time as you read it, he instead shows them grace and mercy. In sum, Joseph uses his new power to save them. This Joseph account reminds me that 2,000 years ago, there was a greater Joseph who was also his father's favorite. He too was betrayed by his brothers. Just like Joseph was sold for silver, so was Jesus. Jesus' betrayal led to his death. And as, as after Jesus died for our sins, he rose from the dead, ascended to heaven. And where is he seated right now? God's right hand. And he's now interceding for us. Even though we were his enemies because of sin, he loved us while we were still sinners. In place of judgment, 
which he drank to the dregs for us, he offers us mercy, forgiveness, and grace as a free gift. And the best part of all, because of his forgiveness, we can have peace with God. Real, tangible, actual peace. Romans 5 tells us that because of Jesus, we are at peace with God. Because we are at peace with God, again, when we receive what he did for us, if we haven't received what he did for us, you're not yet at peace with God. You need to receive, we need to receive what Jesus did for us. That's the only way for us to be at peace with God. So when we receive Christ, the scriptures tell us, Romans 5, that we are at peace with him. We will one day sit at the great banquet table with him. You thought Friday night here was good, and it was. Can you imagine sitting at the banquet table with Jesus at the head? And you're sitting there thinking like, oh my gosh, I don't deserve to be here. And therein lies the beauty because of his grace and his mercy and his forgiveness That's why we're there. We're invited into that feast. And gosh, I can't wait. (laughs) So Jesus, our better Joseph, gives us a better forgiveness, one that brings us everlasting peace and joy. So thank God for our better Joseph and his work on our behalf. So not only do we see that Advent is about peace and joy through the life of Joseph, but now, number two, we're going to see the same thing through the life of Moses. Moses. So moving on, after all of Joseph's, Joseph's brothers are spared because of his mercy and forgiveness, they end up moving to Egypt and they multiply like crazy. The Pharaoh that was good to them dies and a new Pharaoh emerges who enslaves them brutally. The people cry out for help. And guess who hears them? God does. When we cry out to help, God is not silent. He's not in the heavens doing something different. He hears those cries for help. He eventually raises up Moses to deliver them. So God sends Moses to Pharaoh again and again. At first, it says that Pharaoh hardens his heart. Then it says God hardens his heart. So even though God sends Moses to him again and again, allowing horrific plagues aimed at the plethora of Egypt's gods, things go from bad to worse. The plagues are increasing in intensity, and the last plague, the worst of all. It would be one that would affect every firstborn there. So Moses is told to have the people take a perfect lamb without spot or blemish and sacrifice it at twilight. They are to take the blood of the lamb that died in their place, take the blood of the lamb that died in their place, take the blood of the lamb that died in their place, and put it on the doorposts above and around. I always thought it's interesting. If you were to draw a line straight down and straight across where they put the blood, kind of makes a certain object, kind of give you a hint right behind me there in the wall. So they take the, love, take the blood, smear it above and around the doors, and that was the only way, the only way for God's wrath to pass over them. 
For when God saw the blood, his wrath would pass over them. If he did not see the blood, the firstborn was killed. So as the Israelites are hunkered in their homes, trusting in the blood of a lamb that was shed in their place, Pharaoh and the people ignore it to their own peril. Now with dead firstborn people everywhere, Pharaoh finally lets them go. But again, he changes his mind. It's kind of like this guy is a glutton for punishment. I I don't understand, but he chases them right to the shores of the Red Sea. And with a wall of water in front of them and crazy, insane, angry army behind them wanting to kill them, Israel, this people of God, are in a real predicament and they're going to need a miracle to get out of it. And guess what? God does yet another miracle. He makes a way where there is no way. Take a look at Exodus 14. This is what God does, starting in verse 21. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land. And the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning, watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians." Continues. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen, all the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus, the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Wow. That's incredible to imagine that. Imagine this wall of water. You can stick your hand in and see fish. You ever see uh, uh, Prince of Egypt? That, oh, it's incredible. The cartoon scene of this is amazing. So that The Israelites are able to walk across on dry ground while Pharaoh and all his armies die in the pursuit. The Moses account reminds us that God is very good at making a way where there is no way. It reminds me of something Jesus said in John 14, 6, namely that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one 
I'm saying no one comes to the Father except through him. As our better Moses, Jesus made a way where there was no way. The Moses account also reminds me that when God sees the blood of Jesus shed on our behalf, his wrath passes over us as well. But like any Christmas present, you have to receive that personally. He's done it. He's done all the work required to get us right with him. But like Christmas, we've got to receive that present personally. If we don't, his wrath remains over our sin, and it will separate us from him forever. That's a crazy thing that God saved us from, but it must be received. And his rescue to us and for us is a rescue that brings us eternal peace and joy. So before we move on, by accepting Jesus' death on our behalf on the cross, what he did for us there, not only has God's wrath passed over us, but he's adopted us into his family forever. God is now our father. He's our Abba. He made a way where there was no way. The salvation that God provided through Moses, as we read it, it's, it's, an, it's awesome. It's incredible. But what greater salvation he offers to us through the blood of Christ. Because of his blood, nothing, nothing can separate us from his love. We are his. He is ours forever. And that kind of love creates a peace in our hearts and a joy that's inexpressible, doesn't it? That's the place where we say, yes, (laughs) yes, it does. So after such an amazing rescue, God takes the people to Mount Sinai and gives Moses the Ten Commandments plus 603 other commandments for a grand total total of 613 commandments. That's a lot of commands. These commands have very specific directions about how a holy God could dwell in the midst of a sinful people. They included directions for building the tabernacle, for sacrifices, for feast days, and basically for their whole life with God. So the trip from Mount Sinai, where they got those commands, to the border of the promised land was supposed to take 11 days. But after whining, complaining, grumbling, and not believing God, Moses and the people disobey God and then travel in the wilderness for 40 years. 11 days to 40 years. Any of us been through that before? Not fun. So Moses gets to see the promised land, but he dies before he enters it. And it is, it is his replacement that takes them into the promised land. So not only do we see that Advent is about peace and joy through the, the life and the account of Joseph, and Moses, but now we see it through the life of Joshua, number three. Moses couldn't lead the people in, and Joshua does. I love that. Think about that from a bigger perspective. Zoom out a little bit. When we think of Moses, we think of him through the lens of getting the law from God. So think of it. Moses equals law. We think of Moses, we think law, Ten Commandments. But scripture is really clear that the law 
can't save us. It gets us to the border of the promised land, but it can't get us into it. Hmm. Galatians 3 unveils this a little further. Galatians 3.23 says this. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we may be justified, declared righteous, through faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. So if the law can't get us in, what or who, whom can get us in? Enter Joshua. Love the book of Joshua. He takes them in. And many years later, a greater Joshua would do the same thing for us, not just into a temporal promised land, but one that would never, ever end. And by the way, the meaning of Jesus' name is God is salvation. And that's exactly who he is and what he's done for us. Through his perfect life, death, resurrection, and ascension, Jesus, the greater Joshua, offers us a peace and a joy that never, ever ends through him. But that peace and joy is only found in him. You can't have peace and joy apart from him. They are in him. You get him, you get them. You don't have him, well, you don't got peace and joy. So where are we looking to these days for peace and joy? Lasting peace and lasting joy are only found in the everlasting one, our greater Joshua, Jesus Christ. So where are we looking to these days for peace and joy? There's a better source, and it's in Christ. So not only do we see the advents about peace and joy through the life of Joseph and Moses and Joshua, but now, number four, we see it finally through the life of David. Have you guys here like David in the Bible? Oh, he's awesome. But he's a man in process, just like all of us. So after the people are in the promised land and finally have a modicum of peace, during the period of the judges, the people forget God over and over again. Like I've said before, reading the judges makes you want to bang your head up against the wall. Don't do it too hard. It may have lasting impact, but it does feel like that when you're reading that book. So they forget God. An oppressor comes. They cry out for help. God sends a deliverer to them. They're back to peace. Then they forget God again. And round and round we go, right? So the book crescendos with the people just saying, you know what? We, God, we reject you as our king, and we want another one, one we could see with skin on. Give us one of those kind of kings. Despite seeing God work over and over again on their behalf, all the cool nations had a king. And we want to be like the cool nations. We want to have a king as well. So God gives them Saul. And unfortunately, Saul turns out to not be a very good king. So God gives them a man after his own heart, a man named David to lead them. David's name means beloved. And through him, the true beloved one would come. But I'll get ahead of myself. So one of the scariest battles of all time, David stands up to Goliath. 
Goliath is said to have scaly-like armor on. Now, what does that remind us of? Maybe a big snake standing upright? Hmm, kind of reminds me of that. When I heard the story growing up, I heard over and over and over again that we were David, and Goliath was anything that stood in our way. So face your giants, take them down. But if we're honest, I think the scared Israelites quaking in their boots is a way better representative representation of us. We need a mighty man to step up in our place to fight the biggest battles that we can never fight and win on our own. Enter David. He comes, he, just like every other character we've seen so far, he represents the greater David to come. More on that in a minute. So with five smooth stones in his hand, he runs at the giant. And the giant, again, representing Satan, is spewing all sorts of venom at David. But I love how he responds in 1 Samuel 17. This is what he says. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth. Then all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And that this, that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword or spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. Woohoo, David, them's the fighting words. And he goes into it. So empowered by God's spirit, David runs right into the battle and takes the giant down. He cuts off his head, which I don't think you're going to see crocheted on a pillow or anything like that, right? Not one of those things you, you know, paint as a mural, but uh, it did happen. And now that reminds us of anything, I think, that we've talked about so far. I don't know, maybe a promise from Genesis 3. Remember that God promised there that the coming Messiah would crush the head of the serpent? Well, that's exactly what David did there, empowered by God. And that's exactly what our greater David did too. So Jesus, by the way, who is our greater David, he came from the line of David, he is the greater David, he fought on our behalf. He entered the fight in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. We needed someone to come and fight our greatest enemies, which were Satan, sin, hell, and death. Those were our greatest enemies. Do we have a chance of taking them down by ourselves? No. We don't. Can you take down Satan, sin, hell, and death on our own with our own strength, with our own wit, with our own strength and determination? No. The answer is no. We needed someone who would step into our, in our place and take those enemies down. And Jesus ran right toward our giants and took them down. Jesus beat Satan, sin, hell, and death through his perfect life, death, resurrection, and ascension. And when we trust him... We are now in him, and he is in us. So his victory becomes our victory. Because of his victory, we have peace with God and joy inexpressible. So before we move on, 
by seeing Jesus take down our greatest giants, I think it reorients how we think about our lesser giants. If Jesus beat the greatest giants of all, can he also in us, with us, through us, be our lesser giants as well? So what kind of giants are in your path right now? What kind of giants are standing in our way? If Jesus is the giant slayer and has beaten our greatest giants, will he not also with us, in us, through us, take down our lesser giants as well? But we need, there's a cooperation that he invites us into. So what sort of things are giants in our path right now? My hope is that as many times as we need to, we run to our giant slayer and ask him for help to live in his victory. Is this a one-and-done kind of thing? Oh, I did that back in the 80s. Jesus helped me take him down back then. Well, it's 2021, right? We go to him and go to him and go to him and go to him, and he doesn't get tired of us coming to him and saying, Lord, I need help with this next giant, whatever this next giant is. You've already taken down my biggest and worst ones. Now help me with this one. So what is it for us? It's not a one-and-done kind of thing, but it's an invitation for us to come again and again as many times as we need to. Like we saw in the video before the message, the Old Testament story ends with Israel having David and then Solomon as their kings. Well, after Solomon, though, things get pretty messy. Israel breaks into two groups, ten tribes of Israel and two tribes of Judah. Israel has 19 kings over them, and none of them are good. God speaks over and over again to them through the prophets, inviting them back to peace, back to joy, through repenting and returning to him, and they refuse, and they go into exile. Judah, the southern kingdom, has 20 kings. Eight of them are good, so they last a little longer but they take the same path as Israel. Their temple is destroyed, which is horrific, and they go into exile as well. But we have a God who doesn't give up on his promises. Our God made us a promise in Genesis that he was going to send a sin crusher into the world. He's not going to forget that. He doesn't forget his promises, and he won't do that for them either. He is the covenant-keeping God, a God who would bring his son into the world to save us, and who did that perfectly. So even though they're in exile, God reminds them of that over and over again. He brings some of them back into the land. They, have, they rebuild a temple, which isn't as good as Solomon's temple, but at least they have one, and they rebuild the walls. And that's where the Old Testament story ends, with God's people waiting for God's promised one to come. And I think that's a fitting ending for us as well because Christmas Eve, we're going to see him come. And we're going to see what he came to do for us. And it's going to be incredible. So as we wrap up our time together this morning, I said a few times now that I want to look at the themes of Advent through the lens of the people of the Old Testament. And I think, I hope, we've seen that every story in the Old Testament whispers his name actually probably more accurately, shouts his name, right? Through Jesus, we have hope, real, lasting, and living 
hope. Through Jesus, we have the kind of love that thrills us to the core that can be restored in him. Through Jesus, we have peace with God, a peace that never, ever ends. And through Jesus, we can know a joy that's beyond words. So with Christmas only, what, five, six days away, may we remember the greater covering for our sins. May we remember the one who has left his home in heaven to come to this world. May we remember the one who is a better sacrifice for us. May we remember the one who gives us a better identity in him, the better blessing we've been looking for our entire lives. May we remember there is a better forgiveness through him and a better blood that causes God's wrath to pass over us. May we remember the better Joshua who brings us into the everlasting promised land, the better giant slayer alive in us, the one who has beaten our greatest enemies and will be our lesser enemies as well. And family, may we remember that Jesus is coming into the world. He came into the world as a baby to be the best gift we ever could receive. Advent is about hope, love, peace, and joy, all found in Jesus. Let's pray. So, Father, I want to thank you that we can take a look at your son through this flyover of the Old Testament. I thank you, Lord, that every time we open the scriptures, we're seeing you. We're seeing you lifted up. We're seeing what you're really like. I pray, Lord, that as all of us, as we read the scriptures, that that would be our guiding principle, that we'd see you there, that we'd interact with you, that you are Emmanuel, God with us, that we would talk to you about the very things we're reading, that we would ask your Holy Spirit to brag on you, that we would let your Spirit open our eyes to see you in all of Scripture, and through all of that, that we would really truly believe that you are our hope, you are our love, you are our peace, you are our joy. So Lord, I just pray that if we've received that gift that we'd go deeper into it this Christmas, that we'd go into Christmas with anticipation of seeing that more clearly this coming year. And Lord, I pray that wherever you're working in our lives, that you would help us to see that you are the wellspring of those things. And Lord, for anyone here or listening online or however they're seeing this and hearing this that has not yet trusted you, I pray that this Christmas season, they would recognize that they need you that you are the hope that they're looking for. You are everlasting hope. You are the one that brings them peace with God and joy that's everlasting. You're the love that they're looking for. And I just pray that if any person here hasn't yet received you as the best Christmas gift ever, that this would be the season they do that so they can really truly be part of the family of God and receive these gifts and never have them taken away. So Lord, please, by your spirit, keep drawing people to faith in Jesus. And for those of us who have trusted you, keep taking us deeper into these realities in every area of our life. Help us be a hopeful, loving, faithful, joyful, peaceful kind of people, all because of you. Thank you, Lord, in your name. Amen.